Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio, that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. He's the only one who can. And so let's pray, God, we have come here today not just to sing songs, not just to see friends, not just to learn something, but to remember that we were dead and because of you, we can be alive. And you're the only one who can do that. We cannot conjure it up. We cannot earn it. It is, it is grace and the only way to get it is to receive it. And I pray, Father, today as we dive into your word that you would show us how amazing this grace really is. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Welcome to Three Creeks. My name is Joel, and I get to be the pastor here. And if you are new, then what's up? Welcome. Uh, We're glad that you're here. If you're uh, part of the Three Creeks family, and you're usually here. I just got to tell you that I love you, and I love, I love getting to come here on Sunday mornings. I would have quit by now if I didn't love it, and I love it. And so I'm grateful that, uh, that I, I have a church that I love to be with, and I hope that you feel the same. If you're visiting, if you're new and checking things out, uh, we are a church that loves being together, and we love to follow God together. And so whether you are interested in finding him or finding out more about him or following him, uh, we would love for Three Creeks to be a place that you could, could do that and a place that feels like home. We're in a series that we uh, are just calling Ephesians, a church that's built on Christ. And we're just going through the book of Ephesians one verse at a time. Last week, we wrapped up chapter one. Today, we're going to get into chapter two. If you have a Bible, you could turn there now. We'll throw the words up on the screen in case you don't have a Bible with you. But, uh, you know, Ephesians 1 ends on a high note. It ends with uh, this, this prayer that Paul prays for the church. And then it, it has two verses at the end of chapter 1 that are about Jesus and who he is and where he's sitting right now. And it, it's one of those passages that just makes you want to worship and praise and love Jesus and stand up, put your hands up. It ends on a high note. And then we're going to see the tone switch a little bit. If you missed week one or two or three, give me 45 seconds to try to catch you up to speed. I said that we're going to go through the book of Ephesians, but what you ought to know is that really this thing's a letter. Paul was a missionary and he wrote a letter to a church that he used to pastor. He was the pastor at the church in Ephesus for three years. And after he left, he was arrested. Now he's in prison. And he heard from one of his buddies who came and reported, hey, this is what's happening in Ephesus. And so Paul writes them a letter. Now we have it in our Bibles as the book of Ephesians. And here's what you need to know about this church in Ephesus. They were a pretty young church, just like us. And they were in an important city, just like we are. And they were facing a lot of social and cultural pressure to bend, to give up ground, to compromise. And and we are too. I'm not kidding when I tell you this. They met in a school just like we do. 
They didn't meet in the synagogue and the religious places. They met in a lecture hall, just like us. And they too, just like us, needed to spiritually mature so that they could stand up underneath what Paul knew was coming. And we too, Three Creeks, are about five years old as a church. Some of us have been following Jesus for 40 years. Some of us have been following Jesus for four weeks. But what's coming up, we're going to need to be spiritually mature to stand up under that, to stay in the game, and to grow old with the Lord. So that's why we're going through Ephesians. It's the perfect time for us to go through it. I was helped in studying for this message specifically. Uh, I read a couple of quotes from a guy by the name of John Mackay, who once had been the president of Princeton Theological Seminary. He said, as a 14-year-old boy, he had been reading the book of Ephesians, and as he read it, he said that he had what he described as a spiritual awakening. This is what he wrote. He said, Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened, and then he wrote, I was really alive. And what's interesting to me is that he doesn't say, I read the book, I read the book of Ephesians, and I found it very interesting. I read the book of Ephesians, and I learned quite a bit. What he's talking about is the invading power of Christ. He says, I was spiritually made alive. 45 years later, he's given lectures in Edinburgh, and he referred again to the book of Ephesians, and he said, Ephesians is the distilled essence of the Christian religion. It is truth that sings, doctrine set to music. Let me read that again. He said, it is the distilled essence of the Christian religion. It is truth that sings, doctrine set to music. And so if Ephesians is a song, then the first verse, if you will, chapter one, is a, it ends on a high note in a major key. It's one of those It's the point in the song that you want to stand up and put your hands up and you go, this is awesome. God really does love me. It's about the goodness and the kindness of God. And then it's as if, 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 if this really is a song, as we transition into chapter two, it drops into a minor key for a minute. And, and frankly, it's a little uh, discombobulating. It's uncomfortable if we're going to be really honest about it. This message today If you're interested in coming to hear six tips to be less stressed or seven tips to get your best life yet, it's not the one. I'm just going to kind of tell you what it says. Ten verses today, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The first three are about the way we were. The next six are about what God did about that. And then the last one is about the proper logical response we ought to have if verses 4 through 9 have actually taken root in our lives. It's going to kind of feel like this. You ever imagined yourself, or maybe you've had this experience, you can imagine it better than I can, of having something feeling off in your body. It just feels different. Something's going on. So you call the doctor and you say, I just... I just got to come in and just kind of share some of these symptoms I've been feeling. And they say, we're going to run some tests. When you come back in here in two weeks, we're going to run some tests. We'll we'll tell you what's going on. 
You go back in, you sit down, the doctor looks across the desk at you, and he says, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which one do you want first? And because you want to end on the good news, you say, let's get the bad news out of the way. Just tell me the bad news. And the doctor looks at you and says, you are sick. You are sick and the disease is fatal if untreated. This is serious. I'm so glad you came in. I'm so glad we ran these tests because we have been able to diagnose that you are seriously ill. And you sit back and you go, okay, take that in for a second and let it sink in. And then you say, well, you said that there was going to be good news. And the doctor says, the good news is we do have a treatment plan for this. And you say, well, how successful is the treatment plan? And the doctor says, 100%, 100% for those that take it. And you say, well, why wouldn't, why wouldn't somebody take it then? Is it too expensive? Does it hurt? The doctor says, no. But some people don't believe me when I tell them that they're sick. So they choose to say they're going to do it their way. That's how today's going to feel. How about it? It's going to go like that. The first three verses, I'm going to talk about the way that we were, the diagnosis, and it is grave. And then verses 4 through 9, I'm going to talk about what God did about it. And the news is good. It's 100%. The treatment, it, it's, the disease is totally curable. And then verse 9, like I said, the logical and proper response that a person who has been saved from their sickness how they ought to live their lives, all right? So here we go. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul's going to try to express the immensity of the grace of God and salvation, but he can only do that if we recognize, if we are honest about, if we are confronted with our condition before we were saved. I'm going to read all three verses. I'm going to do it just slow enough that you might be able to think about this as I do it. Here's the diagnosis. As for you, Ephesian Christians, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, not some of us, all of us, Paul included, all of us, also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And these opening verses are uncomfortable because it points out the gravity of our lostness and our condition before Jesus Christ made us alive, made me alive. It is a grave and divine and damning diagnosis of the way we were if you are in Christ, and if you are not in Christ, if you have not chosen and made a decision to follow Jesus, then you are logical enough to understand that this is not the way that you were, but the way that you are, according to the Bible. You are dead. And that makes it even more uncomfortable. And if you're skeptical about that, I, I feel like I know why, because the Bible also says that you are not going to agree with me about your deadness until God opens the eyes of your heart and allows you to see that you need him. 
This is a spiritual awakening. I cannot woo you into it. I cannot scare you into it. This is something that God has to do in the life of every person, all of us, Paul says. And perhaps this morning, like the Ephesians 2,000 years ago, God will open some of our eyes to the grave reality and help us take hold of the cure. When we are born physically, every one of us, we are born physically alive, but we are born spiritually dead. And this problem, we, we, we want to come up with lots of ways to fix that about us. We're not so naive to think that we're perfect because we're not. And those of us that have lived a couple of years, it's like, yeah, we're not. We've realized that. And we try to patch it up and bandage it up and make ourselves feel better. And we try to fix the brokenness of ourselves and the world. But the bottom line is that legislation cannot fix it. Education cannot fix it. Indoctrination cannot fix it. Only resurrection can fix it. Only God in his goodness can raise a dead person spiritually to spiritual life. This is a supernatural spiritual awakening that only God can do. There are no exemptions, no exceptions, no excuses, and no escape from this diagnosis other than the escape provided by God in the person of Jesus Christ. When God was setting up the world, he, he put Adam and, garden in, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and it was paradise. They were set up to live forever and thrive under his love and in, under his care. And he said, there's just really one thing you can't do. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Other than that, you're good. If you eat from this tree, you will surely die. That's what he said. And the enemy of God, Satan, comes around and says, no, no, no. God's, God's trying to trick you. What, you. what you really should know is that if you eat from this tree, you will live. And they get, they get duped. They take the bait. And what happens they die. Who was right? And, and every death since then, every physical death since that moment can trace its roots back to sin. We are born spiritually dead. And ultimately, if we die physically, remaining spiritually dead, we will die eternally. And eternal death will be separation from God, which the Bible, of course, calls hell. And this diagnosis that I'm talking about is not just true for the person that has lived a wild life. I, I, was, I was talking with Steph about writing a guide for this week's community groups. And she wanted, she wanted to know, hey, what are you going to say to the people that grew up in Christian homes about this? I, I, I just said, the diagnosis is true. For the person that has brought, been brought up in a Christian home and was saved at a very young age. There are some people in here who have, have lived a wild couple of decades perhaps. And at some point you turn to Christ and so you can point back and go, man, that is a crazy story. But there's some people in here that for the most part you, you, you stayed between the lines. You've made mostly good decisions. You're, not, you, you're never a drug addict. You're never a party animal. Maybe, the, maybe you watched a little MTV in high school. But other than that, pretty good. Compare yourselves to your classmates. You're going, not bad. 
And it's, it's tempting for those of, those of you that feel like that. I, I'm that. I grew up in a Christian home. I, I became a Christian when I was five years old. It's tempting for me at times to think that my salvation is in some way inferior to someone with a crazier testimony. But the truth is that the testimony of every single Christian person is crazy. It's crazy. You might be tempted to think, well, I grew up in a Christian home, didn't really go nuts, never did drugs, never really partied. I don't have a story like the other people they were talking about at church. And so I was just kind of saved to begin with. No, you were not. And no, I was not. We were dead, all of us. And there are no degrees of death. You never look at a dead person and say, how dead is he? How dead is she? Dead is dead. We were dead. And so because of that, the testimony of every single person that is in Christ is crazy, miraculous. Sometimes we're tempted to think of salvation almost like this, where you know, we're out in the ocean and everybody's lost and everybody's trying to tread water and stay up and somebody needs to save us and Jesus in a lifeboat comes by and tosses a, 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 a lifeguard buoy to us and we grab onto it and he pulls us in and we were saved. If we think of it like that, then it's easy to start saying, well, but he had to tread water longer than I did, so his story's better. And he had to swim, she had to swim further than I did, and so that story's better. And so for that reason, that illustration doesn't really describe the gospel. The gospel is more like this. We were all face down, floating, bloated, dead, totally dead. And Jesus and his lifeboat came by and yanked us into the boat and breathed life into our lungs and we were resurrected from the dead. And so that's why it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian or even if you, if you remember when it happened, the testimony of every Christian is unbelievable. So don't, don't believe the lie that yours isn't as, your salvation is in some way inferior to somebody who, who maybe wandered a little further than you. We were dead. We were dead. If you read verses 1 through 3, you realize quickly that our condition was far worse than we were willing to admit, which actually makes salvation far greater than we could ever imagine. I want to go through these, four ver uh, yeah, these three verses. I want to highlight four words that describe our natural condition, the diagnosis, if you will. Conveniently for me, conveniently for you, they all start with D. Maybe we'll remember them. The first one, as for you... You were dead. It doesn't take a genius to realize that Paul here is writing in the past tense. He's writing to Ephesian Christians who are now alive. And so you're logical enough to recognize that the Bible is telling us that if you are not in Christ and you have not made a decision to follow him, that it changes to the present tense, you are dead. So to put it simply, you either were or you are. You're either dead or you're alive. And I talk to people who, and, and even, even people that have crossed over from death to life and God has resurrected them spiritually. I talk to people and we all kind of want there to be a little bit of a middle ground, a transition phase, if you will. 
where people go, all right, well, the Bible's true, and sin really does lead to death, and death really does lead to hell. I don't want that, but I also am not sure if I want to jump all the way into this Christian thing. And so we've got these, this, this wishful thinking that there's some kind of neutral ground, but there's not. You're either dead or you're alive. So unless a man or woman comes to believe in Jesus and accepts what Jesus has done, they remain in the condition that they were born dead. And only God can raise the dead. He did it with Jesus and he wants to do it with every single one of us. We either were dead or we are dead. Here's the second one in verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. I took a little liberty to stick with my D theme. We were, we are, we're drifting. The diagnosis is that we were dead and that we were born as drifters. We were born and just naturally we follow the ways of the world. We go with the current. We go with the secular stream. We, we go with the society that is without God. And the reason that we begin to do that so naturally, why that's so easy, is because we believe, we become convinced that somehow there's safety in numbers. That the best thing to do is to just do what everybody else is doing. Just go with the current. Don't swim against the current. That's hard. A dead fish goes with the current. It just floats. It takes a fish that is alive to swim against the current. The Bible's clear. There is a way that seems right to man. And in the end, it leads to death. Jesus describes the road to destruction as wide and well attended. There's a lot of people heading that direction. And so just saying, well, because everybody else is doing this, it must be the right way to go. It's actually what the Bible says not to do. It says, don't follow the ways of the world. Don't do what everybody else is doing. There's a better way, but you're going to have to be alive to be able to swim against the current. Otherwise, you're just going to float. And the bottom line is that the condition of my soul before God was that the deadness of my life made it so that I was a drifter. Here's a third one, disobedient. We follow the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Who taught me how to lie? First time I remember lying, I think I was four. Who taught me how to steal? I stole $20 out of my dad's wallet when I was five. Didn't even have an older sibling to teach me how to do that. I just did it. Who taught me how to be greedy and subconsciously always want a little bit more? Who taught me how to crave the approval of people as if that was going to make me feel successful and go to bed easier at night? Who taught me to worry? Who taught me to be anxious? Who taught me to gossip and talk bad about other people behind their backs? Sure, at some point, maybe there were some examples of some other sinners, but the bottom line is that I was born that way. I was born disobedient. That was my natural condition. And now a bunch of us are realizing that, oh, our kids are that way. 
Our kids are disobedient, unbelievably disobedient, especially Willow. <laughs> she is relentless. What this is saying is that the enemy of God is actively at work in the lives of our children. That the enemy wants our kids to stay dead. And I, as a dad, I can't fix that. I can't bring my kids to life. I can pray for them. I can encourage them. I can influence them. But I can't resurrect them. Only God can do that. And when I, when I say that out loud, there's a part of me that wants to freak out. Because I want to control it. I want them to go to Christian school, put helmets on them. Not ever let them get their driver's license and just protect them so that they can at some point realize that Jesus loves them and they'll have Jesus in their heart. Like, I want to control the whole thing. But really, if I'm being honest, I know myself well enough to know, yeah, I'm glad this isn't in my hands. I'm glad it's in his. God loves my kids more than I do. And only he can bring them to life. I told you this was going to be uncomfortable. I just involved everyone's kids. Listen, either this is true or it's the biggest load you've ever heard in your life. But if it's true, it does affect everything. And let me just, let me just pull back the curtain on my personal life on the way that God has been just pressing this on me as a Christian person. If this is true, it affects everything, especially for me, evangelism and sharing my faith. If this is true, it affects that. Because for me, if I'm just being honest, that's uncomfortable for me. I don't, I don't love it. I don't seek it out. But if this is true, then I can't just put evangelism on the shelf and say that's something for somebody else to do. I'll get around to that right before we do the evangelism series at Three Creeks. And then when, when opportunities are handed to me to talk about Jesus, I could never take a pass. When I see, when I see a way to bring Jesus in the conversation, I couldn't, I couldn't hesitate anymore. I couldn't be so timid. And when I do finally share my faith, when I do go into places that I'm trying to reach people with the gospel, I couldn't do it like this anymore because this is kind of how I do it. Hey, you want to, I'm a pastor at a church. You want to come check it out? could find some hope, find some direction for your life, friends, joy, but you don't have to. Like, I'm not trying to put any pressure on you, but it's an option, but you don't have to take it. I can't do it like that anymore. Like, if I really believe that this is true, and I do, and so that's the way that God has been just pressing this on me. And so I just had to ask the question, if you are alive, what does this need to change for you? Because that needs to change for me. Here's the last one. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Deserving of wrath. And I'm like, man, is that really what it says in the Greek? 
Maybe it could say deserving of correction or punishment. That would sit a little easier, but that's not what it says. It says wrath. It's because what we have done is we have committed cosmic treason against God. We have incessantly put ourselves on the throne where we don't belong. And I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think it's true. We, we, would, we would much prefer if God could just kind of forgive and forget and move on. But not if it's somebody else's sin. If it's our sin, we just, we, we just, if we could just ignore that. But if it's somebody else's sin, if it's another injustice we see somewhere else, we go, that should be punished. When we see, when we see injustice in our country, we go, that should be punished. When we see injustice all over the world, it, it just makes us shake because we go, there's no justice there. We want justice. We want punishment. We want what's due to them. See, we're okay with God being mad at other people for their sin. We're okay with God being mad at Satan for his sin. But we're not okay with God being mad at us for our sin? If we remain spiritually dead, we will experience the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is his reaction to evil. It's the reaction of holiness to that which is not holy. It's not like God is going to have a temper tantrum, a fiery outburst. This is measured. It is predictable. It is just, and it makes sense. It is his settled reaction to the evil in the world. And you cannot say, well, I believe in the love of God, but I don't believe in the wrath of God. That is a contradiction. You can't say it. You can't, it doesn't work like that. Think about it. The wrath of God shows us the full extent of God's love. It is because he loves us that he is so opposed to the evil that is in us. If you were sick, if you had cancer, the worst thing that your doctor could do could bring you in and say, a tumor, big deal. A tumor here, a tumor there, I'd ignore it. Because indifference is not an expression of love. Are you tracking with me? Like, they, 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 they work together. Who could follow a God? Who could love a God that is indifferent towards us? Who would believe in a God that was indifferent, that couldn't care less, who doesn't care enough about us to be angry about our rebellion? I couldn't do it because it doesn't work. A father who says to his kids, do whatever you want. What do I care? Who would want a dad like that? And in God, we do not have a dad like that. We do not have a father like that. It is his wrath that shows us the full extent of his love. It is his intense wrath against the evil that is within us that shows us the extent of his love for us. Dead, drifting, disobedient, deserving of wrath, bad news. Bad news, all of us bad news. But I told you that this, this had a twist. It had that moment where you get to say, well, but you said there was good news. And there is good news. 
It's that all of those things can be in the past for us if we choose to put our faith in Christ. And so you got to understand that verses 4 through 9 is a treatment plan for this disease that we've been diagnosed with. But it only works for the people that admit that they're sick. It only works for the humble people that say, yeah, I could use that. I do need that. I need this. I am dead. I am disobedient. I am drifting. I am deserving of wrath. If you're not willing to go there, well, then what do you need the cure for? That's crazy. Start taking medicine for stuff that you don't think that you're sick for. You've got to come to this point where you go, I need help. I need Jesus. If you've never hidden five verses of the Bible in your heart and committed them to memory before in a row, that hasn't been a practice of yours, but if you've thought about memorizing five verses in, the, in a row, I would tell you to start with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. This is what it says. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Nobody got there because they were able to swim faster. Nobody can boast. It's by faith. It's a gift. For we are God's work, handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you have decided to follow Jesus in your life, then the difference between your condition when you were spiritually dead and your condition now because you've been resurrected, it could not be more dramatic. I want you to just for a second as we close to imagine yourself as a corpse, dead, lifeless, nothing, locked up in a car, about to enter into the flames of the crematorium. That's how dead. And someone leaps into the flames and drops the people's elbow on your corpse and busts the thing open and pulls out your body and breathes life into your body. And there's burns on the person that saved you that will last forever. But he yanks you out and he breathes life into your body and then he takes his clothes and he puts his clothes on you and he cleans you up and he puts you in a limousine a chauffeur-driven limousine and you get in there and there's an ice-cold LaCroix and there's buffalo chicken dip because he was ready for you. This is paradise. And the chauffeur drives you to his dad's presidential palace and you walk in, you get ushered in and people clap for you when you get there and you get to stay in his rooms and you feast at his table and you enjoy the hospitality and the generosity of his father forever and ever. That is your testimony. That's what happened to us if you are in Christ. And and it's almost like the the writer of the Ephesian song, Paul, was like, hey, hey, this is chapter one. This is a big starting chorus. And he he gets us all excited about who Jesus is. And then he says, but remember, 
Before we bring it back up again, we've got to go down. We've got to remember how bad it was so that we can understand how great it is that we were saved, that we were dead, and that we are alive again. All of this, I don't even know how long I've been talking. I think it's been too long. All of this, there's two responses to it. Either one, we say, nah, I'm not that bad. I know people that are worse. I don't buy it. And if that's you, if that's the response, the Bible, I'm not, telling, I'm not saying it, the Bible says you're dead. Or the response is, I need help. I'm a mess. Made mistakes. And there's no hope for me. And I'm not telling it to you that the Bible says it. Oh, yes, there is. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you can be alive again. The Bible is so clear. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and can raise you from the dead, that you will be saved. Here's how I want to end today's service. If you would stand up where you're at. I want to try something. I'm going to pray a prayer. And it's a prayer for resurrection, for a spiritual awakening, to be really alive in Christ, for Christ to do a supernatural work in our lives. And I'm betting that there's somebody in here that's prayed this prayer before. You've prayed it 150 times just to make sure. And I know that there's some folks in here who have never prayed this prayer. And I don't care which one you are. I'm going to pray a prayer that asks God to come in and bring us back to life. And if that's the first time or the 150th time, 150th time that you've prayed it, I hope that you feel the gravity of it. I'm going to pray and I'm going to leave just enough space between my sentences so that you can pray it too. And you can pray it out loud or you can pray it in your head. You can whisper it under your breath. God will hear it in all of those ways. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, I was born dead. And only you can bring me to life. Forgive me for my sins. I want to be alive. I give you all of my life for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com. Thank you.